We're going to go to the book of Isaiah tonight in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah in chapter number 5. Isaiah chapter number 5. The book of Isaiah in chapter number 5. Look at verse number one with me, if you will. Now will I sing to my beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes? And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the heads thereof. And it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment. But behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Now, leave your Bible open there because we're going to look at some more verses as we get on into the message. The uh, Lord brought a parable. It's a parable. And uh, it's pretty powerful, truly. And it has a lesson for us, uh, a strong lesson, really a strong lesson. <clears throat> you know, I love the parts of God's Word when I read in the Psalms, and man, it's just like a soothing balm, you know, and it's just smooth and good. And But I'm very thankful for the strong parts of the Bible, too that seemed to pinpoint things in my own life that would help me to better live a life for God because we all need help, right? Come on, all of us. Yeah, we do. And uh, our God is full of grace. He's full of grace. Now, He was full of grace in the Old Testament too, <laughs> truly. And we got to think about this tonight. Do we live like God's grace is amazing? Because we should. We should live that way. We should live that way. Let's pray. We'll get started. Father, help us as only you can help us tonight. We pray. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus Christ's name, amen and amen. Thank you so much for standing for the reading of the Word of God. And please be seated. One of the most hotly debated subjects in Christian circles today is the nature of God's grace. Uh, That debate's not so much about how God manifests His grace. Most people who are genuine Christian agree that. 
beginning with salvation, the Christian life is all of God and it's all of grace. We understand that. God in grace loved us when we didn't deserve his love. God in grace came into this world to save us when we didn't deserve to be saved. And we can study the grace of God really from now until Jesus comes back and we'll never find in ourselves anything that merits the love, forgiveness, and care offered to us in Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen. It's all of God's grace. Really look at it, look at it from any angle that you want and you'll always find God's grace amazing. On that all true Christians agree. Come on, I'm saved by his grace, and it still amazes me that he saved me. Absolutely so. Amazing grace. Where the disagreement arises is how grace operates in our lives after we're saved. After we're saved. And again, virtually everyone agrees that grace in some sense is liberating. Grace frees us. Somebody say amen. I'm thankful. It frees us. It does. It, it, it does. The question that is debated is this. What does grace free us to do? What does it free us to do? One author answered that question this way. He said this, quote, Before Christ came into our lives, we were hopelessly lost in our lust, helpless to restrain our profanity, our glandular drives, our insatiable greed, our continual selfishness. We were slaves. We had to serve the old master. There was insufficient strength within us to live any other way. By redeeming us, Jesus set us free. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he said, in effect, no one else need ever live as a victim of sin. All who believe on Jesus Christ, my son, will have everlasting life and will have the power to live in me. I thought that was a pretty good description. So how could it be that wicked slaves of sin could be given such a standing before God? Well, we're back to our favorite word again. It's grace. It's the grace of God. We don't deserve it. It's just something that God freely gives. Grace awakens. Grace enlivens. It empowers our ability to conquer sin. Come on, don't miss that. It empowers our ability to conquer sin. I'm still a sinner saved by grace. Absolutely. But I do have the ability by God's grace to change also. And in the 37 years that I have been saved, God has changed a lot of things in my life. And continues to do so as I look unto him. I'm very thankful for that. And that is the perspective that Christians have held for many, many generations. And with great uh, consistency, they have taught that grace liberates us from the enslavement of sin, which it does. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul put it like this in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Come on, should we just keep on sinning that we can brag about God's grace? God forbid. That's what the Bible says. So the Apostle Paul was very grieved at the thought that anyone would use the grace of God as a justification just to continue to sin. And sin more and more and more. Yet, that is precisely what a lot of people are doing today. Uh, Under the banner of grace, they teach a false view of Christian liberty And this liberty that they're teaching is used to excuse behavior that the Word of God consistently forbids. They oppose, in the words of one such author, any teaching that restricts behavior, any teaching that says, don't do that, curb your appetites, rein in your desires, discipline and sacrifice yourself. No, no, they oppose that as as contrary to the life of grace. 
that we should be, now that we're saved, we should be able just to do whatever we want to. Excuse me. Down at the couples retreat this weekend, the neighboring crowd with us in the room next door were, they, they labeled themselves this, Catholic Christians. Catholic Christians. Now, that, that's an unheard term on my part. It's the first time I heard it. That's the way they label themselves. Well, we're Catholic Christians. And in all my Christian life, I've always heard, I tell people that I'm Christian, and if people were Catholic, they'd just say, oh, well, I'm Catholic. But now they have this new term, Catholic Christians. And this group that they had assembled there for the weekend uh, were young people, people in their early 20s or so. And they had brought them there pretty much to recruit them, recruit them to go out and do the work of the Catholic Church, even around the world. And so they had mass and did these religious things. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just telling you what we saw. They had mass and they did all these religious things that they go through. And then that night... They had a booze party. No, it was pretty much just a wild, drunken, we can do what we want to now that we've had mass. And that's sad. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be ugly toward anybody. But that goes against what the Bible teaches. And... And, and it's not just, here's the thing, it's not just these Catholic Christians. And don't get me wrong, I, I talked to some of them. I gave some of them my testimony and talked to them about the Lord and how I got saved. And You know, I, but it's not just these Catholic Christians that we happen to run into for the weekend. This is starting to happen in quote-unquote Baptist churches around the country where they have this new idea of the grace of God. That now that we're saved, as long as we go to church and do our, our Christian duty, then we can, you know, it's not a big deal to have a drink every once in a while or go out and do some dancing or just have a good time. I mean, we, are, we have Christian liberty. No, I mean, there's, that's actually happening. It's happening. Now, I was saved out of the barroom scene. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. All it ever brought to me was heartache and heartbreak and sorrow. It's all it ever brought to me. And now that God has freed me from that by his grace, I don't want to go back. So we have to be careful. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying we have to be careful listening to these people that are out there now saying that it's okay. You know, once you trust Christ as your Savior, it's okay. You can have a little wine. I mean, a little wine ain't going to hurt you, whatever case. No, no, we have to be careful of this. Because it does not line up with our Bible. And we don't want to buy into that. You know what buys into that? Our carnality buys into that. That we can feed our flesh. That we can feed our carnality. But I'm telling you, we're supposed to die to self and live unto Him. And His grace does not give us the liberty to live a life of sin. It does not. It does not. That type of grace claims to 
free Christians to pursue their own way of living without, without guilt or shame or rules of any kind. And it was crazy that next day as we were going down and, and, and uh, these, these young people were getting on the elevator with us. And, and, and it, I, I mean, it burdened my heart because a big part of them looked very hungover. And they're recruiting them to go out and do God's work. And mercy, if there was never a time, no, no, come on, you young people listen to me. If there was ever a time that we needed to stand against something like that, it's today. We need to stand against that. Not in an ugly way. We just need to stand firm on what the Bible says. We're not going to live like that. Bible doesn't say that. We're not going to do that. So, so, okay, so how does God expect us to live in response to His grace? I mean, does God have any expectations of those that have received His grace? I really believe that Isaiah 5, uh, where we're reading, is more, more than adequate to provide us the answer to these questions. So let's begin by noting that these words, noting that these words were directed to the Jews back in Isaiah's day. Come on, we have to take things in its context. I don't want to jerk anything out of context. And so it was directed to the Jews in Isaiah's day. So that's the way that we're going to seek to understand it first. We'll understand what God has written to us here. And it starts with this song, a parable, a wonderful grace of Jehovah. And this song addressed to God is a, is a song of love and worship. And I, Isaiah refers to God, you saw it there, as his well-beloved and his beloved. And he was acknowledging that he was well-beloved of God. I'm thankful for the love of God. That he was well-beloved of God. He knew that he was loved of God and loved in a great way. And so because of that, he loved God in return, which is the way that we should do things. He knew that his relationship to God began with God and was rooted in God's love and grace to him. This song presents a parable of God's grace. Uh, The Jews at this time would have no trouble understanding the parable. And the parable went kind of like this. If a man set out to plant a vineyard, he'd choose the best piece of land that he could find. And then he'd go out there and he would fence it in to keep his vines from being ransacked by the beast of the wild that might come through and do that. And he would improve the land by clearing out all the stones and he would plant the choicest vines that he could find. And then he would build a tower in the midst of everything uh, so that he might watch to defend it from thieves that would come in. And the expected result of all of that work is that it would produce grapes. I mean grapes. We're talking about juicy, luscious, delicious grapes. And surprisingly, it brought forth wild grapes. Wild grapes, a a small, sour grape that was really good for nothing. You couldn't eat them. You couldn't make them any drink out of them, anything. Just good for nothing. And then in verse number three, God calls upon the Jews to judge between him, between God, And his vineyard asking two questions. Question one is this. What more could I have done for my vineyard? What more could I have done? I mean, I fenced it. I got stones out. I took care of it. What more could I have done for my vineyard? Okay, it's kind of like this. Uh, Was the problem with God? Had he failed in some way to do that which was needed to produce these good grapes? And then the second question is this, why, when I looked for it to produce grapes, did it bring forth sour grapes? Why did it do that? 
So if the problem wasn't with God, then it must lie with the vines. So what's the problem here? Look at verse number 7. This is an explanation of it all. It says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vineyard is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. The people were the plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. So the well-beloved is the Lord of hosts. And the vineyard is the house of Israel. And the fruitful hill that he planted upon was the promised land. He put them in the promised land. Somebody say amen right there. He did. No, no, come on. He prepared a place for them and gave it to them. He placed them there, a land flowing with milk and honey. Are y'all still with me here? Yeah. He put them there. So by means of this parable, God's reminding Israel of all that he, in grace, has done for them. This is what I have done for you. So he delivered them from being slaves in Egypt. He had done that. He planted them in the promised land, a land described as, again, as flowing with milk and honey. He had given them his law so that there'd be no confusion concerning what is right and what is wrong and what God had expected of them. We know that he had given them the tabernacle. He had given them the priesthood. Everything needed, everything needed to maintain a right relationship with him, with God. And we know this too. He had given them great victories. I mean, protecting them from their enemies, raising up men like David who led them to many victories over time. So the Jews could look back on a long record of God's gracious dealings with them. God had provided everything that was necessary to live in a manner. God had provided everything that was necessary to live in a manner that would please him, that would please God. God had every reason to expect good fruit, the good fruit of judgment and righteousness. Where people would be treated justly. And people would conduct themselves in righteousness. He provided everything. God had done that for these folks. And what, and what God was asking the Jews is this. What more could he, could God have done in his grace for them to equip them to produce the fruits of righteousness and justice? No, he's asking them, what, what, what more could I have done? I gave you the place. I've taken care of all this. What, what, what more could I have done? And if there was nothing more God could have done, then why did Israel produce such bad fruit? Come on, he's trying to bring out a point here. So he began to examine, we have to examine Israel's fruit. Look at verse number 8. It says, woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. So in verse 8, God moves from the parable. Get this. We have to get this. Come on, keep it in context. He moves from the parable to preaching. Now he's going to preach to these people. And he targets six different areas in which Israel produced a fruit unworthy of the grace that God had bestowed upon her. And each one of these is introduced with the word woe, W-O-E. Now that word is used to denounce sin. But the emphasis is not on the, listen, the emphasis is not on the condemnation of sin. But sin is a source of sorrow and distress. 
Woe is the opposite of the word blessed. And blessedness is equated with joy. So woe is equated with misery and grief. And so he, he gives these areas. And in verse number eight, he pretty much says this, woe for the sin of greed and covetousness. When Isaiah began his ministry, Judah was experiencing unprecedented period of prosperity and some capitalized on that by buying up house upon house and field upon field that they might uh, that they may be placed alone what does that mean preacher well they're driving out others uh, that they may that they alone may possess all of everything that was there seemingly caring more about themselves than helping others you know he's denouncing them here but, but then he goes on, verse number uh, 11. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. So he says this, woe unto the sin of drunkenness. So Isaiah is describing an addict. Someone that's addicted to alcohol, one who cannot control their own spirit and drinks themselves into a stupor that really doesn't benefit them or anyone else. Woe unto them. That's not a good thing. And he goes on. Um, look down at verse number 18. It says, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope that say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. So here's what he's saying with those two verses. Woe unto them that flaunt their sins. Get this. Woe unto them that flaunt their sins. They, they, draw, their, uh, they draw sin into their lives like a fisherman draws a, in fish in his net. And they drag sin around like a beast of burden harnessed to a cart. And they defy God, listen, and they defy God to hasten his work to stop them or to even try to counsel or talk them out of it. Flaunt their sins. He keeps going. Look at verse number 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So in that he's saying woe to those who pervert, who pervert right and wrong. No, it's what it says. Woe unto them, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. And that's addressed to people who have been the beneficiaries of the grace of God. Come on, he's talking to people who have been beneficiaries of the grace of God. He said, man, oh man, what are you doing? Instead of trying to please God, they perverted everything that God stood for. Come on, what God called evil, they called good. We'll just keep right on doing this. And when they did that, which God identified with darkness, listen, listen, come on, you got to get this. When they, did, when they did that, which God identified as darkness, they called it being enlightened. Well, we've just been enlightened. We've studied this. And we see it differently than you do now. No, it's happening. It's happening around the country. And, and you know, in, in supposedly Bible-believing churches, it's happening. 
these things are happening. Look at verse 21. We're moving good. What, verse 21. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. So he said, woe for the sins of self-indulgence and self-justification. Well, what do you mean, preacher? Well, they look upon themselves as the final authority on what is right and what is wrong for them. They, they, listen, they, they, they may listen to what someone else has to say, but in the end of all of that, they'll do what they want to do. And, and, and really, they'll justify themselves in, in the doing of it. Really doesn't matter what the preacher says. Doesn't matter what that I hear. I'm going to do what I want to do because this is what's right for me. Come on, they'll say, "Well, that might work for you, but this other works for me." Oh, come on, you know that might be right for you, but this is right for me. Sure. Oh, well, it goes on. Look at verse number twenty-two. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong strong drink which justify, get this, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. So they say, whoa, no, no, God says, woe for the sin of marketing wickedness. Marketing wickedness. They, they idolize drunkards. The word mighty there refers to one considered a hero or a champion. So they idolize drunkards. They profit off of wickedness, justify the wicked for reward. And they seek to corrupt good people. Listen, they seek to corrupt good people in order to gain more acceptance for their sin. Take away the righteousness of the righteous. Would you say maybe that's what Hollywood does? Can, can we see it pretty clearly? If we really think about it and ask God to help us understand this. It's being pushed down our throats. Sure it is. You know, it should be abundantly clear that God considers a lifestyle that includes such things as unworthy and incompatible with His grace. I mean, contrary to what is frequently taught in many churches in this present age, God does not, listen to me, God does not smother those people that are going against what he says in some kind of unconditional love and acceptance. He doesn't do that. No, no, no. Just because they feel like it's that way doesn't make it that way. Because if it doesn't line up with this, it's not right. It's just a fact. It's, it's just a fact. <clears throat> he, he makes no effort to remove feelings. Listen to me. He makes no effort. God makes no effort to remove feelings of guilt or shame from people that are doing that. No, he's not doing that. They may be shaking it off, but it's not him that's doing that, soothing their conscience for doing all these things that they should not be doing. No, 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 no. On the contrary, God tells them that because of these things, some of them have gone into captivity where they've experienced hunger and thirst. Back up to verse number 13. No, it says that. Back up to verse 13. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished. And their multitude dried up with thirst. And he goes even further than that. Look at verse number 14. He says, therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure and their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. So he said some of them are even in danger of going to hell. They're not trusting me. They're trusting something other than me. 
Come on, I told you from the very beginning, this is a strong portion of Scripture. But I'm telling you, friend, if we don't get grounded in the truths that are like this, pretty soon we're going to be fooled along the way. And I'd rather know what God has to say about these things and try to please Him. Come on, He says that some of these people may be in danger of perishing for eternity. And we know this for sure. That's not God's desire for anyone. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But but people who think that God's grace erases all accountability for their sin are mistaken and are deceived. Absolutely. Listen to this. One progressive, progressive author described grace in terms... Listen, this is crazy. He described grace in terms of a referee who blows his whistle, signals the game is over before it's reached its conclusion, and then declares everyone a winner regardless of how they played the game. No, no, it's kind of like the way it doesn't matter if you played by the rules, and it really doesn't matter what the score is on the scoreboard. Good grief. Grace declares you a winner, and, and you go home with a championship ring on your finger. That's the way you describe it. Um, that's blasphemous. That's heretical. That's heresy. It's not true. Come on, our God is holy. He's a holy God. That's not a picture. That's not the picture at all. The picture of grace. The picture of grace. No, we're looking at grace, but that's not the picture of grace we see at all in Isaiah chapter 5. So let's think about Isaiah's assessment of the problem here. If the fault for Isaiah's, uh, I'm sorry, if the fault for Israel's bad fruit could not be blamed on some shortcoming on God's grace, then wherein did the problem lie? Where did it lie? Look at verse number 24. Verse 24. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, So their root shall be rottenness, and their blossoms shall go up as dust. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So they have cast away, listen to me, listen to me, this is what what is being explained here. They have cast away the law of the Lord, and they despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Here's the problem. God's addressing it. They thought that grace meant there were no more rules. That God's law just didn't matter. It didn't matter. And when God's, no, no, listen. When God's preachers warned them otherwise, they just despised the preaching of the word. Don't have to listen to those prophets out there telling us how bad we are. Come on, that, no, no, that's where they were back during this time. We're talking about God's chosen people. And because of those two things, woe stacked up on top of woe and sin piled up on top of sin until God's patience was exhausted and judgment was in, inescapable. These people that take God's grace for granted, or they mistake it for a for an excuse to sin all they want to will one day pay the price for it. 
No, I'm not saying like, I'll judge them. No, 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 they have a judge. I'm just saying, no, no, no. They will one day pay the price for it. Because God, God gives us everything that we need to live the life that he would have us to live. Come on, when we got saved, he gave us the Holy Spirit of God. We have him. We have the word of God. It's laying there in your lap. We have it. We, we have good Bible-believing, teaching, preaching churches such as this one that we can go to and learn what God has to say. And we have God's grace and mercy. But we don't want to take advantage of that grace because if we will do things God's way, then we can be blessed. Come on, we can experience blessedness Instead of woe. Instead of woe. <clears throat> okay, Brother Marshall, good grief, man. Come on, preacher. I mean, that was Israel. I, I know, I said that. Didn't I say that when we got started? Yeah, that was Israel. Well, that's Old Testament. Oh, I said that too. Pretty sure, pretty sure I mentioned that, yeah. Well, I know, but come on. I mean, maybe God's grace just operates differently in our lives today. Maybe it's different in our lives Today, perhaps what God expects in response to his grace today is not the same as what God expected back then. Maybe it's just not the same, preacher. Well, think about Titus chapter 2 and verse number 11, where the Bible says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Listen, listen. Teaching us. What's teaching us? The grace of God. Come on, I'm not taking it out of context. What is saying? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, let me go ahead and say it. God never contradicts himself. Well, that Bible's just full of contradictions. I'd like for somebody to show me one, but I've not been able to have anybody do that yet. No, it's not. This Bible is 66 books that fit together perfectly. And there are no contradictions in it. There are no mistakes. There are no errors in it. It's direction we have from God and how that He would have us to live. Never in the Word of God, not one time, will you find grace presented as an excuse to make light or justify sin Mike light of our justify sin where God's grace abounds it's always viewed as providing the means to live a life that pleases God a means no I love that that's great that's good stuff a means to live a life that pleases God God's grace God saved me by his grace he continues to change me by his grace God does. And God's grace truly is amazing. I mean, even that Jesus Christ would come into the world and die for sinners like us is something we'll never be able to explain. I said, we'll never be able to explain that. No way. Except to the point, uh, I'm sorry, except to point to God and uh, whisper one word. Grace. 
It's just his amazing grace. Amazing. So, how can we that have benefited so greatly from God's grace best magnify his grace? Well, not by continuing in sin. I said you cannot magnify his grace by continuing in sin no matter what others may say. You can't justify that with the Bible. No way. The way that we magnify grace the most, listen, I'm right at done. The way that we magnify grace the most is by allowing it to change our lives. To liberate us from sin. Not using it as an excuse to sin. That does not mean that ever in this lifetime we will become sinless. Because we won't. We won't. It just means that as we grow in grace, we want, we want to sin less and less. We want to become more like Jesus is what we want to do. Sure. We want, listen, listen, we want to say no to sin over and over again because we delight in saying yes to the one who has lit up our lives by his grace. Okay, I'm going to say that over again. We want to say no to sin over and over and over and over. I can keep going. And over and over and over again because we delight in saying yes to the one that saved us by his grace. Mercy, because every time we say yes, it just gets a little better. Every time. I think Isaiah would say it like this. He'd say to us something like this. If grace is so amazing, shouldn't we live like it? I mean, shouldn't we show people how liberating a life of grace can be as we live soberly and righteously and godly in this world? Shouldn't we? So the question tonight, invitation tonight, would just be this. Do you live like God's grace is amazing? Or do you take advantage Maybe it's time to make some changes in your walk with God. Maybe. Possibly. I know this. Those who are saved by the grace of God, God will change by His grace when we finally say yes to Him. That's what He wants. That's truly what he wants. Let's stand. Would you stand with me? Let's stand.
Heavenly Father, I don't know how you've dealt with any hearts here tonight. But I know your word is true. And I know your grace is amazing. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you saved us by your grace. And that you want to change us by your grace. As we will just yield to your way. And quit trying to justify what we do. Father, however you may have spoken to hearts tonight, there may be someone here that does not know Christ as their personal Savior. I, I pray, Lord, that they would come tonight, that they give us opportunity to show them from your word how they can settle that. And for us that are saved, I, I pray, dear God, as, we, as you have spoken to hearts tonight, that people would respond, that they'd not just slough it off, that they would do what they know they need to do, Lord, to draw closer to you by your amazing grace. Bless this time of invitation. Help us, we pray, please. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Piano's going to play. Many have already come. You need to come tonight. Let's, I'm not, we'll not take long, but you need to come. Why don't you step out? Why don't you come? You know God spoke to your heart. You know you have a need in your life. Why don't you just let God have his way? Just yield to Him. Let His grace change you. You're here tonight. You don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Why don't you come tonight? We can have somebody take you aside and show you how you can get that all settled. God wants to help you. Doesn't want you to die and go to hell. Does not want you to live a life contrary to what He would have you to live. He's here for us. He's a loving, caring, wonderful, gracious, merciful, forgiving, heavenly Father. And His grace is truly amazing. Would you let Him have His way? Whatever He wants.